Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we're health journalists who spend our lives asking tough questions to experts who really know their stuff. So you don't have to. This week we are talking about the use of inclusive language and gender-neutral language in healthcare settings. As ever, we would like to know what you think. So please do contact us on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMinefield. Last week, one of the world's most respected medical journals, The Lancet, carried a front-page story on female menstrual health. It was an article uh, that examined the, I suppose, problematic, to use the the hot term, history uh, relationship that the medical profession has had with periods. And it's steeped in all kinds of strange attitudes that men have had towards women from biblical times almost, um, right up until last century, in which doctors still believe somehow that menstrual blood was toxic. It was a fascinating read, actually. But the editor of The Lancet decided to pull out one sentence from that article and emblazon it on the front page. Mm. And that sentence was, Historically, the anatomy and physiology of bodies with vaginas have been neglected. And it caused outrage, mostly by women who said, I don't want to be called a body with vagina. It was very kind of, um, what was that that term that that American politician used, the host bodies? Oh my goodness, that was weird, wasn't it? Yeah, the, it did remind me of that. Referring to pregnant women as, as host bodies and then the Texas commentator um, in the media who was justifying banning abortion in Texas and saying that, that yeah, that women were host bodies. I mean, something from a B-movie, it's, really. Yeah, it? it's all very kind of sci-fi, Doctor Who type thing. But I think what really annoyed women on social media was the this idea that they were being erased from medical literature. I mean, it's a big debate that's been going on. Uh, I mean, the Mail on Sunday, where we work, carried in uh, 2017 um, a front-page story that trailed the use of the term pregnant people um, mm. to replace the word mother in maternity care. Or expectant mother and pregnant women as well, wasn't it? That they yeah, I mean, it, 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 to be honest, when I saw that, I thought it was, uh, well, I didn't think it would catch on, but it really has. And it's part of a movement within healthcare to use inclusive language that doesn't necessarily gender people with the idea that not everyone identifies as a man or a woman or people who do identify as men might have characteristics of a woman mm. or vice versa. Basically, just not to... To a, include to, everyone. Yeah, to include everyone, which I think's fair. Absolutely. On the whole, it is. But it but it does, it starts to get slightly, what's the word? Let's say complicated when the phrases that are used are very difficult to understand. You know, for instance, bodies with vaginas. I mean, what does that, what does that mean? No idea. And what is that actually? I mean, it was a it was a bit of a, a misquote, or you know, it was a bit of a. It was taken a, out of context. It was I very. Felt. I mean, the actual whole sentence was historically the anatomy and physiology of bodies with vaginas have been neglected. For example, the paucity and understanding of endometriosis mm. and the way that women's pain has been seen as more likely to have an emotional or psychological cause, a hangover from centuries of theorising about hysteria. Now that's really true isn't it i mean we've reported on the fact that women aren't believed 
when they're in pain, especially from things like endometriosis, which is, is linked to their menstrual cycle, a pain condition linked to the menstrual cycle. Completely. But th those reasons are exactly why a lot of women are saying that it's really important. We say that, that these are, are problems that affect, on the whole, women. And for centuries, women's pain and suffering and health problems have not been correctly identified as something that affects them. And, you know, they've been dismissed. And so a lot of people are saying that this is the same problem. We're doing the same again, but we're, but in a slightly different way. The, the idea behind inclusive language comes from uh, the Nursing and Midwifery Council codes and the General Medical Council codes that medics should treat people as individuals and uphold their dignity, treat people with kindness, respect and compassion, avoid making assumptions and recognise diversity and individual choice. And I'd go back to saying these are admirable mm. But it's not helpful if terms muddy the waters, confuse people or upset other people. And we saw that, for instance, with the term BAME. Mm. Um, it was widely adopted and it took quite a lot of advocacy from black and Asian and other minority ethnic commentators to say that they didn't feel that the term was appropriate because... It lumps everyone in together. It erases the differences. It doesn't recognise the individual or respect them. And A, there's that worry with inclusive language. And, and, and these are kind of things like, instead of saying breastfeeding, you'd say chest feeding. Instead of saying grandfather or grandmother, you'd say grandparents. Uh, instead of father, you'd say the non-pregnant or non-gestational parent. Instead of mother, you'd say birthing person or gestational parent. But my problem is, and I do think this is, you know, a bigger problem as well, who actually understands what these things mean? Absolutely. And, and that is a bigger problem in healthcare, that we know that one of the big barriers to access in healthcare, and one that's been brought up many times, is understanding. And if you've got a country where you've got a great degree of difference between literacy and numeracy um, in your population you have to make sure you're pitching messages that can be understood by everyone. I mean, certainly when it comes to women's health, we know that there is a very poor uptake of, say, cervical screening mm. um, by women whose language isn't, first language isn't English. And by taking the word woman out of women's health... Are they even going to know you're talking to them? Exactly. I, I've looked at this and there's some interesting studies, actually. Um, the researchers refer to this phenomenon as something called health literacy. And so if people are seen to understand messages that are aimed at them properly, then they're rated as having high health literacy and, and the opposite is low health literacy. According to a recent NHS report, I was shocked to find out that apparently 61% of working age British adults say that they struggle to understand health messages that are aimed at them and to protect their health. And so what kind of messages are they? Oh, so anything like um, the correct dosage of a drug that they're given on prescription, or it could be something to do with preventative strategies. So for instance, even healthy eating or turning up to a cervical screening at a certain time, for instance. There's also research looking at people's understanding of dosages on the back of a paracetamol packet. And according to studies, about 43% of working age adults say that they struggle to understand what the dose is on the back of a paracetamol packet for a child. Um, so I think you have to, there's there's a little bit of mental arithmetic that comes into it when you're working oh, out what yeah, the so yeah, it says for a child. Take two tablets four times once a day, no more than a certain amount. 
It, yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be quite confusing. It I is quite, quite confusing, confusing and it's not surprising. But, I mean, it's a large number of people who already are at a disadvantage because they don't understand the information that's out there. So, essentially, language does really matter in healthcare and use of language. We're joined now by Dr Alison Berner, who's a specialist registrar in gender identity at the Gender Identity Clinic at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust and also a cancer expert at the Bart's Cancer Institute. Dr Berner, thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us. We're talking today about inclusive language in healthcare and the use of terms that are perhaps more gender neutral, specifically when it comes to what might have traditionally been seen as as women's health. So, for instance, instead of saying expectant mothers or pregnant women, you'd say pregnant people. And the idea that instead of saying breastfeeding, you would say nursing or lactation or even the term chest feeding. Could you explain to me why do people think it's important to use these kinds of terms? Well, I think it's really important that we recognise that women is a term which which encompasses those who were assigned female at birth, but also those who were assigned male at birth and vice versa, because people's sex and gender are, are two very different things. We're seeing now, for example, growing numbers of trans men or non-binary people who were assigned female at birth getting pregnant, for example, those people still need to access sexual health services, gynaecology, pregnancy-related services, cancer services, which can be particularly gendered. But it's hard to put into words actually what a difference it can make to someone's overall experience of their care by you being more inclusive. So people who are trans or non-binary can experience quite extreme dysphoria, so you know, a, a quite a discomfort um, when certain very gendered or anatomical terms are used. And it, it really puts that person at ease if they're able to not hear those terms or have to read those terms in order to engage with, with healthcare information or be accepted into a particular space. And being mindful of those terms makes that community aware that they're welcome within those services. I think that's a really clear explanation of of why this is a valuable thing to be doing and looking at and discussing. But it seems to me that the upset comes when the majority of service users, for instance, maternity services, feel that in fact by using a gender neutral term, they're being excluded. Is that a problem you're aware of? I don't think anybody is actually trying to, to exclude anybody. I think the vast majority of the trans community and those who are involved in activism or trans healthcare recognise that the predominant group of people who are accessing maternity services or gynaecological oncology services, for example, will be cisgender women. But actually, it's about just ensuring that those small changes can be made to to take account of those who've got a different experience or got a different identity. There are changes that you make to various aspects of healthcare for people with other protected characteristics or minority groups. And this is no different. This is about inclusion rather than exclusion. Now, there are cases where one has to be particularly mindful. So if someone has 
a uh, quite a low level of of healthcare education or, or literacy, for example, then if they see a term that they're not familiar with, a term that might be, say, particularly familiar to people in the trans community, but not so familiar in the cis community, that could be confusing. So we do need to take those sorts of things into account. And it's also about the imagery that we use. So whilst the vast majority of imagery in pregnancy service, for example, is going to be of cisgender women because that's the majority of clients that we see, there should be imagery there that reflects other users, that reflects trans men in the same way that Mm. imagery should be reflective of people with physical disabilities, for example, that you want to see in a, in, a, in a multicultural country that we have, you want to see posters of people from lots of different ethnic groups. It's mm. about making everybody feel welcome. But I think what people say, w- women have been saying they are, you know, for instance, this week, The Lancet carried this front cover talking about bodies with vaginas in a way of describing women and the lack of understanding of endometriosis. So it, it, to and being inclusive in, in that respect, people were saying, women were saying on Twitter, some very quite reasonable women were saying, we don't want to be called bodies with vaginas. That offends us. It upsets us. So... Isn't that a bit of an own own goal in terms of inclusivity? I guess there will always be somebody that doesn't like a particular term. I am a cisgender woman. My, to, I have a body. That. I have a body with a. I have a body with a vagina, and and to me, that's okay. And I, when I see a term like that, it makes me feel like, okay, that's great. This piece of information is applicable to me. It's also applicable to my trans male friends. If they have a vagina, they may not have a vagina. It's an anatomically accurate term to take. But what women were saying was they were offended, they were upset by it. Mm-hmm. And there will always be people who might be offended or upset by very particular things. There will always be subgroups of people that will be. But that is quite different to, mm. to triggering dysphoria in somebody we need we need to we need to try to be inclusive of the maximum number of people i think that's just a really important point to to make and we also need to think about historic erasuring discrimination a little bit so the fact that that the scales have been tipped the other way for a very long time and actually we make a massive difference by even small amounts of inclusion for a multitude of minority groups trans people being just one example of that. Uh, I just think that distinction between the level of dysphoria and distress and historical kind of stigma and discrimination versus Hmm. a subgroup of the majority upset at a particular term is quite an important distinction to, to make. Is that the thinking behind chest feeding then, that trans men feel dysphoric? This term dysphoria is a sense of psychological distress correct me if I'm wrong, uh, mm-hmm. a sense of psychological distress that trans people may feel uh, when they are in some way reminded of the kind of disconnection between the gender that they feel that they are and the way that they're perceived or appear. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a it's, fairly encompassing determinant, but it's not It's a hugely distressing everybody. experience. You know, we don't want anyone to feel that way. It's it you know, can drive people eventually to harming themselves and suicide. And, you know, it's, it's a very serious thing, dysphoria. And it's one of the reasons why we treat trans people. 
But chest feeding, I'm interested, you know, if I have breast cancer as a man, mm-hmm. um, I'm a cisgender man, it's breast cancer. It's not chest cancer because the breast is the breast and the chest is the chest. So you're introducing another element here that, that we're creating an inaccurate medical term. So when I talk, so I, I'm an oncologist also by background, and when I, when I need to speak to a patient about breast cancer, I say I, I'm going to talk about breast cancer because that's the term that we use and we have to talk about breast cancer clinics because it's something that occurs in the breast tissue. But if I'm talking to someone who I think may experience dysphoria, not all trans and non-binary people do experience dysphoria related to particular body parts, but I will say... You know, is that a term that you feel okay about? Is that a term that you find dysphoric? Would you prefer that I use the term chest, for for example? Now, you as a cisgender man may be fine with the term yeah. breast cancer. You're perhaps less likely to, to experience dysphoria. That said, there may be some people who experience extreme distress with the diagnosis of, of that cancer. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to delve into delve into my minutiae but it's about checking with each individual person what's all right for them and Mm -hmm. producing information that recognizes that that term might not be okay for some people and that's really the key isn't it that that it's it's about using the right term for the right person and by creating blanket terms that everyone should use you're going to miss things you're going to you're not going to be catering to everyone. And it sounds like you, your approach is is this very much more of an intuitive approach and that medics, that healthcare professionals should be encouraged and coached to be aware that not everyone likes to be referred to in the same way and not everyone is like you. And therefore you should ask not to tell people they must swap X term for Y term in all contexts. Is that right? There are going to be some terms which, you know, as cultural terminology changes, there are some terms that are never going to be okay. There are some terms that are going to be okay depending on your audience. There's some terms that it would be better to use because they are simply much more inclusive and because you're aware that that that, that bit of information needs to be accessible to everyone and then you can zoom in a bit more so for example I've done some work with Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust looking at cervical cancer in trans men and non-binary people and we worked with that charity to produce some very gender neutral information that we thought would be understood and interpreted by everyone and that everyone could feel like they could engage with whether cis or trans and then some separate bespoke information which was for for trans and non-binary people that geared much more with that kind of awareness that dysphoria could be triggered in mind and that was kind of signposted right at the top of a page so that you can kind of click away from that more neutral information and have information that's more geared for you if that's what you need. It's not necessarily saying that Everything should necessarily be swapped, but trying to be as neutral as possible from a starting point and then to be personalised where you can be. But because you, you, you have to bear in mind that there's going to be information online which needs to be you know, taken in by everyone. And then there's a healthcare interaction where you can actually check it out and, and try not to make assumptions. But it's possible to ask. Yeah, always, always, always ask. Always ask. Alison, can I ask you something? 
why is it that you feel that this subject is so controversial and always sparks such a fierce debate in which many very well-respected doctors are simply too scared to say anything? I think, and and I, I think that the, the scope for that question goes well beyond <laughs> well beyond what we could explore in a in a podcast. And I think Sean Fay in her recent book, which has received lots of publicity, um, goes into a lot of these factors um, incredibly well. Um, I think in the main, um, as doctors, we just want to treat our patients well. Um, and to to respect them and to provide the best care. Many doctors who have, particularly those who started training long before me, will have seen this area and preferred communication terms evolve and will have had very little education in trans and, and L, even LGBTQ healthcare overall. And that means that they sometimes feel ill-equipped to maybe weigh in. I am in the position that I work in trans healthcare specifically and have engaged with a lot of charities and with activism and have a lot of trans and non-binary friends. I'm within the LGBTQ community myself and therefore I'm I'm able to to amalgamate all of that knowledge and to distill it. I, I think Not it's scared to say the wrong thing. Yeah, and I think, but but it's also recognising that, it, as with anything in life, we will all put our foot in it, particularly if it's something that we don't know a lot about or understand. If you've never met a trans or non-binary person, if they are, have never been your patient or never been your friend or you've never got to know them and you've never got a view of their life, then people find it very hard to to know. It's that pe- people tend to other. We that's a that's a cultural. Thing that we do as humans we like to put people in an out group and it becomes a them versus us I think a lot of this debate would dissolve if more people knew trans and non-binary people in their experience of life because if that happened not for a moment would people be having having this argument I think people find it very hard to put that argument forward of of not saying bodies with a vagina if you know if you've got a trans male friend with a vagina and that's fine you know it's um a difficult time in the world where people are maybe pitched themselves against each other a little bit because because we're all up against it with covid and one thing and another and people like the other particular groups could you not say women and trans men well you could say well you could say cisgender women i mean if you are we talking about we're talking about gynecological organs so let's think about who has a cervix here so some cisgender women, not all cisgender women, so some intersex cisgender women will not have a cervix. Some cisgender women who have had a hysterectomy will not have a cervix. Some trans men will have a cervix, some will not. But then you're also missing non-binary people. Mm. So you're missing people that don't under-identify under that. So I, when I talk about, I talk about pe- people with a cervix. Um, just as you can talk about people with and without a great many other body parts. So you know what applies to you and then you're not making comment on anyone else's body or their mm. I- identity in particular. So to me, it seems quite straightforward. Why do we not say that more? Perhaps that's about 
a baseline level of, of healthcare education. I'm, I'm not sure that everyone quite takes in sometimes what organs they do and don't have when we talk about school. I think I there's think, a lot of people yeah. there who, who won't even know what a cervix is, I'm sure. And that perhaps is a bit bigger and deeper issue that we should spend more time addressing than, than how, how that group is, is referred to. Well, look, thanks very much, Dr. Berner, for finding some time to talk to us uh, and for explaining things so clearly. No problem. Thanks very much. Well, I thought that was very interesting, but I'd be lying if I said I agreed with everything that Dr. Berner said. It does always seem to concern women's health. This is the problem. You never see the term man be debated as much as the term woman. And I find that so interesting. I don't know. Well, I guess it it used to be because there were more trans women than there were trans men. But from what I understand, that, that balance has now been readdressed slightly. Well, before we go any further, let's talk to someone who perhaps has a slightly different perspective. Professor Joyce Harper is at the Institute for Women's Health at University College London. Uh, she heads up the Department of Reproductive Health and uh, their Reproductive Science Group. Professor Harper, thanks very much for finding some time and actually agreeing to speak to us. It's it's not been uh, easy to find someone who's willing to talk on this subject publicly. Um, uh, it's it seems to be quite a, a, an incendiary debate. The Lancet ran this story uh, earlier in the week in which they took a, a phrase from a quite modest piece about an exhibition at the Vagina Museum on periods and used this term bodies with vaginas to describe women, I suppose. And lots of women pointed out that they didn't like being referred to in this way. What were your thoughts about the whole thing? I was certainly one of those women who felt very upset with being referred to in this way. And it's something that I have written about um, in the past when we had the tampon and sanitary products adverts um, were talking about people who menstruate. And at that time, lots of women were up in arms and saying, what's wrong with the word woman? And I absolutely am pleased in some ways that in 2021, we're making a big effort to use words and language that are inclusive. And I'm absolutely for that. But along the way, we do not want to be offending a large proportion of the population. And uh, to prepare for this, I actually looked up on the United Nations Uh, gender-inclusive language, and they said that speaking and writing that does not discriminate against a particular sex, social gender or gender identity, and does not perpetuate gender stereotypes. And I think not using the word woman absolutely does those things. It does discriminate against women and almost dehumanise women who have been fighting for decades for gender equality, and I think it's making us have a massive step backwards. I mean, there, there is a wider movement. Uh, we reported on it in the Mail on Sunday about five years, four or five years ago, when the term pregnant people was first floated. And it's very commonplace now to hear maternity services using using that term instead of saying pregnant women or expectant mothers. Uh, they'll say pregnant people. I mean, what about things like that? Is that? Has that become part of the vernacular? Is it inclusive and harmless and actually just d- does what it says on the tin and, you know, make sure everyone's included? Um, yes, I, I know there's a few hospitals that have done a big movement on gender-inclusive language. And one of the other ones has, has been chest-feeding um, instead of breastfeeding and human milk instead of mother's milk. And I absolutely respect those people who do not identify as a woman but who still would carry and have a child and would still 
chest feed or breastfeed their children. And I obviously would not want to discriminate against them. But I think when we're talking in the majority of terms, we should use language that is more acceptable to the majority of the population. And I I think this is, is absolutely a very difficult topic and a very slippery slope. And um, I'm really happy, as I said, that we're using this gender-inclusive language more broadly. But there's certain circumstances where we are offending the vast majority of, of people rather than trying to be inclusive for the minority of people. And I, I really think it's generally a no-win situation. But if we obviously had someone who doesn't identify as a woman who's in the labour ward, then of course we should use the correct language um, and ask. Yes, absolutely. I think that's become a very common thing, and I'm absolutely all for that. But we ask people what pronouns they want to use and how they identify, and I think that's great. I, I did a survey this year about the menopause, and in the title I'd written woman, and then thought, oh my goodness me, I'm going to be shot down. Um, and then one of the questions, which is a very standard survey question, is how do you identify and I'd written female, uh, non-binary, prefer not to say, and other. And I was shot down for that and was a very select group of people who were saying that anyone that has a menopause is a woman. And so we shouldn't ask people that question. And um, I was trying to be inclusive and got into big trouble with, as I said, this particular group. So I, I, I found it's a no-win situation. We then did a survey on period trackers, and we decided not to use that question at all. Um, it wasn't really important to my survey. But I've also been very aware that there's several books out now about periods and about menstruation. And at least two of them have not used the word woman in at all. Um, I was asked to review one of them. And in my review, I wrote women. Uh, women would find this book really important and was told by the author that she didn't want me to use the word woman in my review, which, mm. and she said, well, why, why aren't you being inclusive? And then I've, I've just looked at Emma Barnett. So Emma, Emma Barnett is the, one of the hosts of Women's Hour, still called Women's yeah. Hour, and her new book called Period. She has done a little audio at the beginning and she talks about women a lot and she said that periods are fundamental sign of womanhood. And I also work at the Institute for Women's Health. So I think that for the majority of women, we want to use the word woman. We're proud of being women. We don't want to discriminate at all. But seeing on the front of the Lancet bodies with vaginas was very, very upsetting to a large portion of our population. Professor Harper, there's, there's obviously issues around here of offending people and saying the wrong thing that might hurt people's feelings. But at the end of the day, are there not also issues to do with real health harms related to people being confused by what these messages mean and who, who they're aimed at? Yes, I mean, the, the Lancet article was a review about a exhibition at the Vagina Museum about the history of, of periods. But we want to get the public to go to this and... People are always confused even about the word vagina. They've used the word vagina. If you ask people what a vagina is, most people actually don't know. And they, they give the wrong definition. They give the definition of a vulva. So, you know, we are campaigning, many of us are campaigning to use the correct language, especially around women's anatomy. And actually, it was an incorrect use of the term because you don't need a vagina to actually have a, a period. 
Uh, you do need a uterus, but you don't need a vagina. And what, what had offended a lot of people as well was the fact that the Lancet had written several reports of men's issues recently. Um, one of them in particular was men, men with uh, prostate cancer. So they didn't say people or bodies with, with a penis. They talked about men. So we're really concerned that the word woman seems to now be a word that we shouldn't be using, but it's okay to say men. And that's not what we want to be. Is there a risk here that these phrases are quite confusing and therefore women, I'm going to say women, may not understand what they mean or that the important information that is aimed at them to maybe help prevent a disease or something, they may be confused about whether that information is actually designed for them? Yes, I absolutely agree. I think terms like uh, uterus and even, even terms like vagina may not be totally understandable by the general population. So I think it's much more important to use language that people do understand. So the Eve Appeal, for example, are making a big campaign to make sure that women, I'll say women again, (laughs) are aware of their anatomy so that they're aware what's normal and what's abnormal. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've got to get this language out there we've got to get people to understand their anatomy so that they can see when something's going wrong of course if you can't articulate the body part that is in pain or or has a particular problem with then you're not going to present to the doctor in a way that would get you a quick diagnosis exactly exactly why do you think this is such an incendiary debate? It seems to always descend into this ac- accusation of transphobia, um, which I'm not quite sure where it's come from. I mean, you, you, have you ever been accused of this? I, I know someone suggested that you shouldn't be uh, working at the Institute for Women's Health. It should be made gender neutral. Yes. So I think it's really fabulous that in 2021 we're living in a time when we are considering the language around gender and gender equality. But I think we've got to be very careful where we go with this. So I've got teenage boys and and they're telling me, well, you can't use this word anymore. You can't use that word anymore. And, And language is really important to us. But I think that a lot of the issues we're seeing now are directed to to women and the use of the word women. And there's this whole discussion about the word woman is not even valid because it's woe man and it's got man in it. And I, I, I think, I personally think that, that we're, we're just going too far the other way. And with these sorts of situations, it is a pendulum swinging one way and the other. We're sort of hitting the other side at the moment with bodies with vaginas and uteruses, etc. And I'm hoping that will swing back to a more central and sensible place with how we use language with hopefully causing no offence to anybody. Well, Professor Harper, thank you so much for agreeing to speak publicly on this, what is quite a difficult topic and for finding some time for us. Thank you. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones' Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Eve, I want to go back to talking about comprehension and I I think that's the big concern here, isn't Mm. it? That It's confusing people by using lots of different terms and changing terms all the time. You know, one minute you call 
somebody a body with vagina and next it's a cervix haver and a you know whatever it is and the worry is that that no one quite knows what to say a great example of this happened also in conjunction with the hoo-ha about bodies with vagina this week with regards to whether or not it was transphobic to say that only women had cervixes. Yes, so the sideshow to bodies with vaginas was individuals with cervixes. OK, this is a very complicated story, so I'm going to try and sum up as best I can. Bear with me. It began with a story written by journalists at the website CNN about cervical screening in which they had referred to individuals with cervixes in the headline instead of using the term women. And Piers Morgan, who I'm sure I don't have to explain is very well known, retweeted this this article with the comment, don't you mean women? The Labour MP Rosie Duffield liked this tweet And an eagle-eyed Twitter follower spotted that she'd liked it and then called her a transphobe on Twitter. God, that's a bit complicated. So, And uh, it's not finished yet. Oh, okay. Rosie Duffield then replied to this and said, what, that makes me a transphobe because I'm saying that women are the only people who have a cervix. Ah, and then Andrew Moore asked... So Keir then Keir Starr was pulled up on this on the Andrew Marr show over the weekend and Andrew Marr asked him, Keir Starmer, was it right that Rosie Duffield said um, that only women have a cervix? And Keir Starmer said, no, it was not right for her to say that. She shouldn't have said it. Um, or I don't think he said she shouldn't have said it. She, he just said it, it, that she was not right to say it. And then interestingly, when Andrew Marr asked him why and to explain what was wrong with that comment, he had no answers. He wasn't able to explain which then dragged in David Lammy, who was questioned by Nick Ferrari on LBC as to whether saying that only women had cervixes was transphobic. And David Lammy had this to say. Is it transphobic to say only women have a cervix, David? I don't know if it's transphobic, but it's not um, accurate, Nick. I mean, obviously, you, it's probably the case that only uh, that trans women don't have ovaries. But a cervix, I understand, is something that you can have uh, following various procedures and hormone treatment and all the rest of it. A number of people listening to this exchange were quick to point out that David Lammy wasn't right. And in fact, trans women who have undergone surgery don't end up with cervixes. So clearly, everyone is confused. No one knows what's going on. Everyone's trying to say the right thing or not say the wrong thing, and it it doesn't really help anyone. But I think back to our conversation with Dr. Berner and how clearly she set things out. And if everyone could have a rational conversation about stuff and try and... Well, it's speaking to the individual, isn't it? It's about not generalising. if you can't speak to them, just understand perhaps or try and have some empathy for what they're going through. I do wonder whether some of these doctors, I mean, it's, you know, it's great that this doctor obviously has a, a close knit of um, of diverse patients and understands the nuances of all of their individual needs. Mm. But for the average person who doesn't come into contact, perhaps with that kind of diverse group of people and may therefore see these terms and think what the hell are they talking about you know you and I report on this uh, we have a wide group of friends we're aware of things going on and and we might understand what something means that Mm. might not be completely obvious but that's what the guidelines are for isn't it you know it's to say you're going to come across people who aren't like you and perhaps aren't like your other patients so just think about it 
And I don't think it should ever be used as a way of, of erasing a group of people in mm. favour of another group of people. But if you can avoid causing distress in the way that you use language, especially as a doctor, mm. then you're going to want to do that. So some guidelines, I suppose, should be useful. And if the guidelines are rubbish, that's what should be being debated. And of course, trans people have a hell of a lot more worrying things on their plates anyway Um, that's what feels so ludicrous about this i think is that it does feel i'm sure that to people who are obviously distressed by these terms and the use of and and being misgendered and that kind of thing you know it's incredibly distressing but there's much bigger issues at the heart of this issue it's not that they're bigger issues it's it's that there is a serious failure in healthcare Mm. going on right now and that's that trans people uh, have a delay of around four years before a first appointment, according to the most recent statistics. And can you imagine any other healthcare area where you would have to, from the point of being referred, mm. because you are so in need of medical help, four years before you get that first appointment? It's nuts. Is that the average figure? So the average wait is four years. Yeah. Well, that was the Tavistock and Portman, and they were saying that uh, they were now seeing people for their first appointments that were referred in 2017. And that was their most recent figure published this week. I mean, that is shocking. And that's scandalous, mm. really. You know, and I think that pales in comparison to any argument you might have over whether you're offended by bodies with vaginas or voice versa. And if we're talking about inequality, that's inequality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is all we've got time for this week. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all of our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.